Hey there, and welcome to Polmcast. Today, we're going to talk about a profoundly lethal gas, one that can tear apart your cells piece by piece, leading to tissue damage and organ failure. It's a deadly gas that, unfortunately, you're probably breathing in right now. Exposure has been implicated in a number of diseases, including myocardial infarction, stroke, lupus, and Alzheimer's dementia. Each breath brings you closer to your last. What's worse is that you and I prescribe this gas for our patients daily. Turn it off. Or at least turn it down. Until it's too late. Okay, maybe that was a little dramatic. You know that I live for drama. Can you believe that Ari told Becca and Lauren that he loved them both? Mm, what? The Bachelor man had me on the edge of my seat nearly the entire season. Anyway, if you haven't guessed already, the deadly gas we're talking about is oxygen. Caught off the press is the IOTA study, that is, Improving Oxygen Therapy in Acute Illness Study. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis of acutely ill adults treated with either liberal or conservative supplemental oxygen therapy. The authors note that the rationale for performing this study is the fact that supplemental oxygen is often administered liberally in our hospitalized patients, but the evidence for doing this is entirely unclear. The study aims to clarify the efficacy and safety of supplemental oxygen therapy. Spoiler alert, liberal oxygen therapy is associated with increased mortality in acutely ill patients. We'll unpack that a bit more later. As a brief review, remember that the body has to maintain a constant and favorable equilibrium between oxygen delivery, or DO2, and oxygen consumption. Ideally, oxygen delivery far exceeds oxygen consumption. Now, the major determinants of oxygen delivery are cardiac output, hemoglobin, and SpO2. I guess to a lesser extent, also the PaO2 contributes, but not really all that much. Adequate oxygen delivery is essential for life, so it behooves us to optimize cardiac output, hemoglobin, and SpO2 in all of our patients until the underlying acute illness is identified and treated. With the operative word being optimize. We already know that liberal blood transfusion is associated with increased mortality relative to conservative blood transfusion. In other words, a hemoglobin target of 7 or less. Remember, this was demonstrated in the TRIS and TRIC trials. In the same way, liberal and sometimes outright excessive oxygen supplementation is declaring itself to be equally harmful. Right, and liberal oxygen therapy has already been implicated in things like absorption and electasis, central nervous system toxicity, peripheral vasoconstriction, even coronary vasoconstriction. And in the AVOID trial, we see that there is increased myocardial infarction size in patients presenting with STEMI who were given supplemental oxygen when they didn't really need it. In our intubated patients, when PEEP is added to the mix, liberal oxygen supplementation is also associated with acute lung injury, delayed ventilator weaning, and reduced cardiac output, which is counterproductive from an oxygen delivery standpoint. On a molecular level, free radicals are produced as a consequence of cellular respiration, and this is normal. Superoxide anion radical, hydrogen peroxide, and the extremely reactive hydroxyl radical. These substances are responsible for oxidative stress, inflammation, DNA damage, and cellular apoptosis. And with supplemental oxygen therapy that is excessive, we end up producing even more. 
So as aerobic organisms, we kind of find ourselves in this paradox. Oxygen is essential for life, yet inherently dangerous to our existence. Optimal oxygen therapy is good. Excessive oxygen therapy is bad. When did this culture of supplemental oxygen start anyway? Supplemental oxygen therapy was first described by George Holt Zeppel, a physician in New York back in 1885. He published a case report of a patient who presented with low bar pneumonia and hypoxemia. Now, prior to this time, most physicians were only administering supplemental oxygen to patients who presented with airway obstruction. What's even more astounding is the way they administered the oxygen. They mixed potassium chlorate and manganese oxide in a test tube, connected that test tube to a bucket of water, and as oxygen bubbled to the surface of the bucket, they had a big fan that blew oxygen into the patient's face. That's (laughs) that's pretty ghetto. That's awesome. (laughs) But I'm sure brilliant at the time. Now, they would administer this therapy a few times per day, and they noticed when they gave patients this therapy, they became less dipsnick, less cyanotic, and went home faster. Hold Zappel went on to describe the physiologic rationale of oxygen therapy. In his own words, he wrote the paper, quote, to benefit country practitioners who had no other means about learning about this valuable therapy. Today, it's pretty evident that Holt Zappel is fairly successful in disseminating the good news of oxygen therapy. Probably too successful. We prescribe oxygen all the time, with the primary motivator probably being prevention of hypoxemia. We provide oxygen to 34% of patients in ambulances, 25% of patients in emergency rooms, 15% of patients in the inpatient setting. Now, granted, these data are from the UK, but I can't imagine ours are much different or better. Did you find it interesting that more oxygen percentage was done in EMS versus inpatient? Maybe I'm thinking about it wrong, but I did. I think there might be a bias toward providing supplemental oxygen in the earlier phase of acute illness. Yeah. My thinking was perhaps inpatient admission was the most sick of the patients who took EMS trips, and maybe that would wean out some of the less sick EMS trips. But but no, I see your point. I think acute illness is the reason for that. Of those patients receiving oxygen therapy, experts estimate that 50 to 84% of them are exposed to excess oxygen with clinically evident hyperoxia. So at least half of these patients, if not more, were given too much oxygen. Now, while many of us are concerned with hypoxemia, I would venture to say that very few of us are concerned with hyperoxemia. In fact, I've gotten tons of pages for hypoxemia, but I can't ever say that I've gotten a page for a patient who had SATs of 100%. Did you really just ask for more pages? No. No, I did not. I'm just trying to illustrate. Really, though, your point is well taken. If I'm being honest, this is consistent with what I see at times in clinical practice. It's not infrequent to see a patient on a couple of liters of nasal cannula with O2 sats of 100%. Or a patient that we intubated for airway protection who was on no supplemental oxygen before, but is now on 40% FiO2, 5 of PEEP, with sats solid 100%. Yeah, well, I'm thinking about that. When's the last time you saw a vented patient with a FiO2 of 21%? I think really the only time that I consistently see that is a patient who's on a home ventilator, and 21% is their home settings. They're just kind of put on, you know, some pressure support or something. But uh, 40% is, for whatever reason, the default for us when, you know, patients may not need that much. 
What oxygen saturation should we be targeting? Let's ask some of our friends in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Now, uh, the question that I asked here was, what is the optimal oxygen saturation to target on a patient receiving supplemental oxygen? Let's take a listen. What is the optimal oxygen saturation target for all comers on supplemental oxygen? 90%. 9-0. Always. Yes. No exceptions. 94%. That's what I would say. Anything above 90 most of the time. 90%. 90%. 90%. So I would I would have to still go with 88% of that point. Across the board, 95%. 95%. Uh, depends on their underlying disease, but normally anything greater than 90. My general answer is probably 94%. We all have our guesses on the optimal oxygen saturation. I think what's interesting is that all of these people were fairly conservative in their estimates for ideal O2 sat. And yet what we see in clinical practice at the bedside might be a little bit different. Before we unpackage this any further, let's go ahead and dive into the study details. If you've listened to any of our Journal Club episodes, you may remember us talking about the BEAM that is best in EM template for critical appraisal, and that is created by the folks over at the SGEM, Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. We're going to be using that template to critically appraise this study, and we'll attach the critical appraisal in the show notes so you can review it yourself. So let's start with the clinical question. The clinical question is, is liberal oxygen therapy efficacious and safe relative to conservative oxygen therapy in acutely ill patients? Sounds like it's PICO time. PICO. What's the population? Uh, the population was patients aged 18 or older and acutely ill. Uh, the authors sort of dive into this a little bit more saying they, they these are patients who require non-elective admission to the hospital and have the potential to be exposed to supplemental oxygen. So they don't really clarify if there were acutely ill patients who were admitted who couldn't have been exposed, but that was their definition. Did they exclude anybody? They excluded patients who were less than 18, so children, anybody who was pregnant, and they also excluded studies that were limited to patients with chronic respiratory diseases. So they really didn't want to get into the optimal oxygen saturation in patients with chronic hypoxemic respiratory failure, for so example. So no COPD or et cetera? No COPD. CPD, no ILD, no uh, pulmonary hypertension patients. Well, probably to further clarify, no patients with chronic lung diseases who are on HOMO2. Correct. So if you had milder COPD, not on HOMO2, you could potentially be in the study. You could have been in the study, as long as you didn't have evidence of chronic hypoxemia Okay. based on the RCTs in the study. Uh, they also excluded patients with psychiatric diseases, patients on ECMO, and patients who were treated with hyperbaric oxygen therapy. The final thing is uh, they excluded patients who were undergoing elective surgery. They had several surgical RCTs in here, right? They did have surgical RCTs, but they were all, quote, emergency surgeries, okay. things that actually needed to happen. What was the intervention? The intervention was liberal oxygen therapy, and this was the RCTs identified as the higher oxygen target, and this was based off of FiO2 or PaO2 or SaO2 or SpO2 or multiple, depending on what the study clarified. Hmm. Comparison? They compared it to conservative oxygen therapy, which in the same way was just the lower oxygen target. What was their outcome? There were two outcomes. There were mortality. This is at 30 days and at longest follow-up. 
and then morbidity, which they kind of define as disability as measured by the modified Rankin scale at longest follow-up, risk of hospital-acquired pneumonia, risk of any hospital-acquired infection, and then hospital length of stay. So those were all the secondary outcomes. Those were all the secondary outcomes. The primary outcome was mortality. Okay. What was the author's conclusions? The author concludes that in acutely ill adults, high-quality evidence shows that liberal oxygen therapy increases mortality without improving other patient-important outcomes. They further go on to say that supplemental oxygen might become unfavorable above an SpO2 range of 94 to 96%. Therefore, these results support the conservative administration of oxygen therapy. We're not going to go through the quality checklist in detail. That's going to be available in the document online if you'd like to see that. But let us do go over the key results. So this was actually a pretty big systematic review and meta-analysis. They identified 25 RCTs that enrolled a total of over 16,000 patients. And these were kind of subclassified into patients who had, quote, critical illness admitted to the ICU, sepsis, trauma, stroke, myocardial infarction, or cardiac arrest. And then they had another subset of patients who underwent emergency surgery. So you want to compare that to your classic ICU RCT, for example, that has roughly in the 300 neighborhood patients. That is a huge patient population difference. Now, certainly not if you compare it to an observational that one of the ones we reviewed recently had over 100,000 patients. It's not quite the same number. But remember, this is a bit better data because this is all RCTs that they're analyzing. Correct. And just to remind you guys that the study did exclude patients with baseline severe hypoxemia, and the authors define this as a PF ratio of less than 100. Some of the RCTs did include these patients, but this systematic review excluded them for a total of over 16,000 people. Phil's going to be sad. He's got severe ARDS. He can't be in the study. Poor Phil. So the conservative oxygen strategy, the median FiO2 of people exposed to a conservative oxygen strategy was room air, 21%. The range was 21% to 50%. What was the FiO2 of the liberal oxygen strategy? So the median FiO2 was uh, 52%, and that range was 28% up to 100%. Now, only 10 studies reported the baseline SpO2 ranges prior to being put on supplemental oxygen therapy. But the median SpO2 of all of the patients in the study was 96.4%. The baseline SpO2 of the liberal oxygen cohort was 96.4. And the baseline SpO2 of the conservative cohort was 96.7. So nearly everything was about 96% of baseline SpO2 range. Okay. What were the actual results of the meta-analysis? So you want to look at this in the form of relative risk. In hospital, relative risk was 1.21, with an absolute risk increase of 1.1%, and that's comparing conservative to liberal oxygen strategy. At 30 days, the relative risk was 1.14. At longest reported follow-up, that relative risk was 1.10. So all of those have an absolute risk increase with them as well. So relative to a conservative oxygen strategy, patients exposed to a liberal oxygen strategy had a 1.1% increased risk of dying in the hospital, a 1.4% increased risk of dying at 30 days, and a 1.2% risk increase of dying at longest follow-up. That's a pretty big mortality jump. 
Now, what was really astounding is that there was actually a dose-dependent increase in mortality as the patient's SpO2 went up. For every 1% increase in SpO2 from baseline, the relative risk of in-hospital mortality increased by 25%. And what about uh, at longest follow-up? So at longest follow-up, for every 1% increase in SpO2 from baseline, relative risk of mortality went up 17%. When calculating a number needed to harm, administering patients liberal oxygen therapy, the number needed to harm for giving patients liberal oxygen therapy is 71. So in other words, for every 71 patients treated with liberal oxygen support that is unnecessary, one patient will die based on this data set. I think that's such an impactful way to look at this, the 1.1%. Sometimes you're like, eh, what is 1%? But if you think about it, we easily have 70 patients plus on our census a lot of days. So one of those patients a day is affected by this therapy. That's impactful. That's, yeah, that's pretty significant. Now, uh, when we talk about morbidity outcomes, the groups were similar. So there was no difference in disability at longest follow-up. There was no difference in hospital-acquired pneumonia, risk of hospital-acquired infection, or hospital length of stay. So really rewinding this, there is no benefit to liberal oxygen support, and there is actually an increase in mortality for patients given too much oxygen. Now, and this trial actually did confirm that there was a lower risk of infections in patients admitted for emergency surgery who were given liberal oxygen therapy. This difference was not seen in medical patients, but I think the key point here is that emergency surgery cohort, even though they had a lower risk of infection, they still had a higher risk of mortality. Now, what I think is interesting about this trial compared to previous trials that maybe didn't hold up to subgroup analysis is that every single subgroup analyzed, so critical illness, sepsis, trauma, stroke, myocardial infarction, cardiac arrest, the mortality carried through in each subgroup. So nothing was different. Every group exposed to excess oxygen had an increased risk of mortality. So this was a high-quality systematic review and meta-analysis of over 16,000 acutely ill patients that demonstrates fairly definitively, again, that liberal oxygen therapy is harmful. There was a dose-dependent increase in both short- and long-term mortality and no significant difference in morbidity outcomes, including risk of hospital-acquired infections when you looked at all of the RCTs. Of course, with the caveat of the emergency surgery cohort, but those may have been exposed to bias and these patients still have a high risk of mortality. These data are biologically plausible. Previous studies have shown that hyperoxia can generate reactive oxygen species that can have pretty significant inflammatory and vasoconstrictive effects on the whole body. And this affects both pulmonary, cardiovascular, and neurological patients. Now, even small changes in SpO2 can cause big changes in your PaO2, remember that sigmoidal shape, the S shape of your oxyhemoglobin saturation curve. I thought this was a good reminder because you wouldn't necessarily think a 92 versus a 96% would be that big of a difference, especially compared to some other types of trials. But because of that sigmoidal curve shape, it could make a big difference in mortality. Now, individual studies have suggested increased risk of respiratory failure, shock, recurrent myocardial infarction, and arrhythmia as the mechanism of harm in liberal oxygen supplementation. But we're not really sure. So a great point the authors made is that liberal O2 therapy may decrease our vigilance around patients and delay recognition of deteriorating patients due to falsely reassuring oxygen values. 
that's interesting. So maybe a patient could be desaturating or becoming tachypnic, but they're only on four liters and then maybe six liters nasal cannula. Sats are fine. And so maybe we're not being as aggressive to fix the underlying cause of that hypoxemia for that patient. Additional research is definitely needed to figure out the specific mechanism of harm. But remember that this is not the first trial that's demonstrated increased mortality with liberal oxygen therapy. This data supports SpO2 target ranges of 94 to 96% because above this level, your mortality increases. But definitely needs to be investigated further. So let's talk about the study's limitations. First, there were significant variations between RCTs with regard to what liberal oxygen therapy actually meant. Yeah, some studies used fixed dose, an FiO2 of 100%, for example, while others simply targeted high O2 sats greater than 96%. Now, the authors comment that this may contribute to imprecision of the exact estimate of mortality, but the consistency of the trial design, in other words, comparing liberal and conservative across the studies, and the fact that the mortality data carried through all of the subgroup analyses, it lends significant credibility to the conclusion that liberal oxygen therapy might actually be harmful. The next mentioned weakness in this study is heterogeneity. Yeah, and this is a big problem in prior studies that compared liberal and conservative oxygen therapy. One was published in Critical Care in 2014 and the other in Critical Care Med in 2015. Both of these systematic reviews noted poor outcomes in patients exposed to arterial hyperoxia. But the authors of these systematic reviews called for further investigation since their data was plagued by profoundly high heterogeneity. In other words, these trial designs were not similar enough to compare directly. The study population was heterogeneous by design, and it has to be when you're comparing things like stroke, sepsis, ICU patients in emergency surgery, MI, etc., But when you looked at each of those individual disease states, there was no statistically significant heterogeneity in those subgroups. So in other words, the stroke patients were studied the same as the other stroke patients. The cardiac arrest patients were studied very similarly to the other cardiac arrest patients. Yeah, and the finding of increased mortality with liberal oxygen therapy was consistent across all subgroup analyses. Effectively solving the previous heterogeneity problem. Yep. So where does this leave us? That is a big question. Let me hit you with a few little questions then. In your personal practice, what is your target oxygen saturation prior to reading the study? And what about after? I think that's a great question. I'm thinking back to hearing all of those people answer our question. I think for the most part, if you asked a provider what acceptable oxygen saturations they would take, they would all say something like 88, 90, 92%. I think that's pretty consistent. So I don't think that trial changes this for me. But what this trial changes for me is for the first time, I'm really thinking about a max SpO2. Before this trial, I wasn't really thinking in those terms. So now I'm really liking the idea of thinking about a max SpO2 of somewhere 94 to 96% like they recommend and really telling our team, hey, if your SAT's above 96%, it's time to wean the oxygen. And if they're on two liters and they're 96%, take the oxygen off. And we've all kind of thought that, but we haven't really put a number to it. So I think putting a number to it is great. So I'm going to give that a try. I I agree with that. And I, I think this study would definitely support the notion of aiming low. If nothing else, we at least have data for that max of 96%. I would love to see other studies, you know, sort of validate this, but I think that we need to be a little more vigilant about our patients who don't need oxygen and take it off. 
think the other thing is people, it will probably even say in the orders to keep the SATs at 88% right now. It probably, I know for a fact it says that in our COPD order set and our ARDS order set, but we just give lip service to that number and don't actually do it because honestly it makes people uncomfortable to see a SAT of 88%. So that leads into our next question of, do you fully buy in and to the audience out there, do you fully buy into the notion that liberal oxygen therapy causes harm? Again, I think it's something that people give lip service to. I think if you, and actually we ask this in all of our FCCS courses, you know, is there harm associated with hyperoxia? People always say yes, but I don't think it gets borne out in real practice for whatever reason. plenty of trials demonstrating harm related to oxygen. You must be speaking of the detox AMI trial, which showed no benefit with supplemental oxygen and acute MI. The AVOID trial, which showed higher mortality and larger infarct size in STEMI patients who got too much oxygen. The HYPER-2S trial, which showed hyperoxia and septic okay, shock demonstrated okay. worse mortality. That's enough. The we JAMA the study in 2010, which showed hyperoxia following cardiac arrest, was an independent risk factor for mortality relative to both normoxia and hypoxia. I got you, man. I got you. I understand. We get the message. High oxygen is bad. But to your point, really, this isn't the first time we've seen the harms of euboxia. Euboxia? You know, normalizing everything. Taking all the boxes with that little red number, that low panic, the high panic, and making them normal. Time and time again, we've seen that overaggressive correction of lab values or physiologic variables is profoundly harmful. Like we talked about earlier with liberal blood transfusion and Tris and Trick or intensive blood glucose control and nice sugar. Or even more simple things like normalizing hyponatremia too fast. Osmotic demyelination syndrome. Or lowering blood pressure and hypertensive urgency too fast. Which is literally the only way that you can mess up treating a patient who presents with hypertensive urgency. Sometimes we need to stop trying to be heroes and just leave those red numbers alone. What is our final takeaway point from the study? So like we've talked about, most people could admit and give you the correct concert of SpO2 targets, but we just don't see that borne out in clinical practice. We don't see those patients closer to that lower SAT target, and we certainly don't see people looking at the max SpO2 target ever right now. And this study kind of demonstrates a safe max, again, 96%. Further data is needed to clarify whether or not that's the case. And there's actually an ICU ROCS study, ICU-ROX that's underway by Paul Young, kind of clarifying if 96% is safe or not. I think they just completed the pilot for that study. They did. And it's actually a pretty cool design comparing liberal and conservative oxygen therapy. For the conservative cohort, there's a hard max and actually bedside alarms for saturations greater than 96%. So I'll be interested to see how that turns out. I'll go on a limb and bet there's still cohorts of providers who may either subconsciously or otherwise believe that hyperoxia at worst is not beneficial for ill patients. But this systematic review and meta-analyses provides strong evidence that hyperoxia, just like hypoxemia, is life-threatening and should be avoided at all costs. And while we need more data to clarify the specifics, we don't need any more data to stop targeting supranormal oxygen levels. In my opinion, as it stands, this is practice-changing data. Specifically, we should have an SpO2 target in mind and write it in the chart. We should use as little supplemental oxygen therapy as necessary to maintain that target. And then further, we should aggressively wean supplemental oxygen therapy whenever possible, keeping in mind that this isn't fluffy sort of best practice stuff. There is mortality data to support this. 
number needed to harm of 71. Other things to consider, there's no reason you can't go down to room air on the ventilator or on BiPAP. If a patient is oxygenating fine, turn down the FiO2 and the PEEP. It's okay to go down to 21% if it's well tolerated. It's definitely our job as providers to clearly communicate oxygen targets and weaning strategies so that we're all on the same page. With that in mind, we rely heavily on our respiratory therapist colleagues who are at the bedside titrating supplemental oxygen every day. Hopefully this podcast convinces you that liberal oxygen therapy is harmful and that all of us, nurses, PAs, NPs, physicians, play a role in weaning oxygen whenever possible. I'm going to conclude with an apropos quote from Dr. John McEvoy, who wrote a commentary in reference to IOTA. You would be a person that uses the word apropos. Quiet. It's a great quote. I'm trying to create a mood. All right, fine. McEvoy writes, Wider recognition that hyperoxemia, similar to hypoxemia, is a deleterious physiological insult and should immediately affect clinical practice. Whether they are actual alarms or simply cognitive alarms, now is the time to set them. Excess oxygen can cause mortality in acutely ill patients. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. And try to wean down that oxygen.